The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half, the first half hour is Sam McElroy. He's the co-founder and managing member at At Financial. Welcome to the show, Sam. Nice to be with you. You as well, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with a little bit of your background leading up to the founding of your firm and what your vision is for At Financial. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of have a very interesting background in that I've worked in two different disciplines that I've been able to try to integrate throughout my practice. So with respect to the financial services, you know, my background was really in the management of firms. So I would go into existing practices. I would uh, shore up their operations, train their sales force, develop marketing programs, all of those types of things. And I think over time, I just became more and more disenfranchised with the status quo in our industry in general. And I think that's what led us to wanting to try a different path as far as uh, the type of firm that we created in App Financial. You know, what I really found is that it was really no fault of any of the firms that's out there, but it just seems to be very fractionalized. So people would have their fee-based financial planner. They might have a stockbroker. They may have a guy who helps them with their auto and homeowners. They may have a tax person. And all of them were so focused on their individual aspects, and none of them communicated with each other. And that just seemed to create a lot of oversight. So in At Financial, what we really tried to do is just integrate the discipline of financial planning, uh, tax planning, wealth management, and risk management into one cohesive, streamlined process. And that's really what we specialize here at At Financial. Um, in addition to that, my background is in clinical psychology, and so I brought a lot of the things that I learned in that field over to the realm of finance as well. Uh, for example, you know, it always surprises me, but we all think that we make sane, rational decisions with respect to our finances, but we found that a lot of the same processes that override our decision-making process just in life you know, impact our financial life as well, and so we do a lot of work around that as well. You talk about holistic financial planning in your website at AppFinancial. What exactly do you mean by holistic financial planning, different from what most financial planners are doing? Yeah, really what we mean is just that we want to take a complete view of each individual in their own context. Um, Instead of just looking at the theory behind how you implement financial planning or capital market assumptions or things like that, we want to be very cognizant that there's a practical real-life scenario that each individual or family is going through. And so when we take this holistic approach, we just want to do it without looking at finances in isolation, but really just making sure that we're able to view them as a person first in all the different areas that may impact the decision-making process around their finances. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your website and what can people find at your website. Yeah, so on our website, it generally just has some information about uh, who we are as a firm, some of the things that that we stand for and what our practice looks like. There's information just about uh, the different 
managers and people that are involved in the program itself. And we also have a lot of information just about our public education series. So one of the core tenets or missions that we founded at Financial on is being able to promote financial literacy um, throughout our communities. And so years ago, we started something called our public education series in which we rotate through all the local universities and basically offer uh, workshops on various different financial topics for free to the community. And so we always post information about what's going on in that program on the website as well. And so your website address is at atfinancial.com, is that correct? That's correct. Very good. Now, you're a member of something called the Society of Financial Awareness, SOFA. Uh, that sounds like that's in the financial literacy. Tell me a little bit about that organization. Yeah, so it's been around for a while. And uh, basically, their mission is to promote financial education and financial literacy. And it's something that we believe uh, strongly in as well. And so we run the uh, one of the Chicago chapters for SOFA. And we try to do a lot of different things. So in addition to being able to just promote financial literacy throughout the university, through our public education series, we're in the process now of being able to develop programs that go into colleges, into high schools, um, just to help people understand and become more familiar with money and money aspects. Uh, And SOFA has been a great platform nationwide they operate to be able to help us get into where people are. So colleges, universities, places, organizations, uh, you know, where people work. And we find that you kind of have to do that. So if you want to go out and talk to the masses, you got to be able to go to where they congregate and where they are. And that's been a great partnership for us. One of the areas you specialize in is helping millennials prepare for retirement. Um, so most people say to prepare for retirement, save more. What's wrong with that? And what do you, how do you help people to save enough since those millennials are probably going to last a long time? Yeah, you know, millennials are going to have a lot of challenges to retirement. And I guess every generation has challenges that the generation before it didn't have. But looking at the difference between, say, baby boomers and millennials, we can start to see a lot of wide discrepancies. Um, It always shocks me that, you know, whenever people are working with someone trying to help them save for retirement, they do this kind of backwards approach where they figure out how much you're going to need in retirement and then they work backwards and say, well, at this compounded rate, this is the amount that you need to save on an annual basis. And if somebody's not saving that, then they look at them and say, well, hey, here's the problem with the plan. You just need to be able to save more. But this is where that holistic planning kind of comes in, because the truth of it is, if people were able to save more, they would be saving more. We have to recognize that it's not that they don't have a desire to save more. It's that the money is being utilized somewhere else. You know, We were looking at some studies previously that was just showing where dollars go that we earn. And, you know, the majority of it really goes to taxes and interest that we pay to other people. Almost as much as 70%, 60-70% can go to taxes and paying other people interest. And so when you factor out what people have left to live off of, there's usually a very small percentage, anywhere between 0 and 3% that people are using to save more. So we found that a better approach, rather than just putting the onus on the client and telling them to save more, is if we can find ways to reduce what they're paying in taxes and reduce the interest that they're paying to other institutions, then we'll naturally free up more money for people to be able to save for retirement. And I think that's really important uh, for millennials, especially because if we look at what the impact of college costs has been for them, um, a lot of them are walking away from college with substantial student loan debt. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger talking point now because we're realizing 
the long-term effect that's happening on their ability to spend in the economy and drive it forward. So what do you, what do you recommend to somebody who has um, got a huge amount of student loan debt and just really burdened by it and they can't be saving? What do you recommend to somebody in that circumstance? Well, I think it's a two-pronged approach. Um, number one is that there's got to be an action plan to accelerate paying off the student loan debts. If we look at a normal uh, you know, amortization schedule for student loans, some of them will have been paid off and call it 20, 25 years if they're using a standard repayment plan. But as a way to try to combat how large student loans have become, you've seen a lot of these income-based repayment plans that have emerged. And while they're great to some extent because they help to manage cash flow a little bit better, they're also prolonging the life of the loans. And so we have to recognize that mathematically, that's not a great way to be able to get rid of the debt. Also, and this kind of goes back to the whole kind of psychology of personal finance, when we think about how we're going to pay off debts, most of us will take whatever surplus we're going to utilize towards paying off the debts, and we'll kind of just sprinkle it across all our debts, hoping that it'll then start to drive them all down. But again, mathematically, that's inefficient. Um, you know, one of the things that we've found that works really well is being able to snowball debt, so being able to just organize them in a way where you can concentrate your surplus on the smallest first and then move on to the next one and the next one. And mathematically, that tends to accelerate the payoff of debt. I think the you think that second aspect... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go I was ahead. just going to say, I think the second aspect of that is that we have to recognize that it's about creating good behavior also. So even if somebody feels like they don't have the ability to save... Um, if we can increase what they're doing just a little bit, maybe it's just 1% of their income that's going towards long-term savings, we found that early on, if we can just establish the behavior, that that's going to then put them in a position to be better off later on because then they just need to increase what they're saving, not go from you know not saving to saving at a later date, which is a little bit harder to do. Do you think a lot of people are taking on student loan debt they should not be taking on? It's not ever going to pay off for them. It's going to be a burden for most of their lives? You know, that's, that's such an interesting question, and it's really hard to, to know. But what we've seen is that there's been a lot of people that are really starting to look at that. I have a couple of clients that actually work in the admission department for some law firms. And what they're finding is that, especially in the purview that they're looking at, there's a lot of law schools that have changed what they're doing or just shut down. Because if they look at what it costs to be able to go through the program and then look at what a first-year graduate is going to make, the risk-reward just wasn't there, the benefit wasn't there. And I think because of the rate that college costs are increasing, we're going to find more and more people that are starting to look at that really seriously to see if there might not be another path to be able to make it work. So I guess you're uh, advising the parents of kids. So say you have a parents, they've saved something but not that much, and the kid's 17 or 18 about to go to college and they don't have enough saved up, they're going to have to borrow a huge amount. What would you recommend to somebody like that? You know, I'd recommend a couple of things. And this isn't just for, you know, parents that haven't saved that much, but really for anybody. They need to just take a critical step back before they launch into college. You know, being able to do things to try to make sure that the student is going to a college that's going to be a good fit for them, that they have some type of aptitude or thought as far as what major they want to go in. Now, obviously, we don't have a crystal ball, and, and they may end up changing, but if we can try to just have some concerted effort to make sure that we're trying to do as much pre-planning as possible, I think that's step number one. 
Okay. Uh, another area you're interested in is Social Security. Um, and, in fact, you're part of something called the National Social Security Advisors. Is that right? NSSA? Um, yep. So what, what is your view on people today uh, who are still in the kind of prime working years, what their attitude should be towards Social Security? Will be the some, there'll be none, it'll be changed. What, what is your outlook for Security going forward, Social Security going forward? Yeah, my, my own personal thought is that it is going to be there in the future. I think it's more a question of what it might look like. Um, you know, if we look at what Social Security says about its own future, it feels that it's basically going to be able to pay benefits the way they are until about 2033, 2034. But at that point, the trust fund would then be depleted, and we'd be relying basically on just new taxation, new revenue that's coming in. Worst case scenario, that's projected to be enough to cover 75% of the now current benefit levels. But I think what we have to think about is what levers can they play with to be able to tweak that? You know, do they increase how much is subject to taxation? Do they increase, you know, the retirement age? And, you know, do they take away some of the things that they did, uh, like the end of last year, where they basically closed some of the uh, claiming strategies that couples were using? So I think it is going to be there in the future. It's just a question of what changes may have enacted between now and then. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Sam McElroy. He's the co-founder and managing member at atfinancial.com. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the rest of the half hour is Sam McElroy. Uh, he is the uh, co-founder and managing member at atfinancial.com. Welcome back to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me, Jordan. 
So you you were, have a background in psychology. What are some of the financial mistakes people make because they don't understand their psychology correctly? It's investing, but getting into debt, other areas that you see, and what are some of the solutions for them to overcome these psychological obstacles? Yeah, I think there's so many different things that happen from a psychological standpoint, and I'll try to touch on a few of, of the most pertinent. But one of the main ones, and probably the most documented one, has to do with just investor bias. So the fact that we all know the mantras of, uh, you know, buy low, sell high, and, you know, all these other types of things, but when you look at it from a behavior standpoint, we tend to do the opposite of what we know to do. So that gets into things like investor bias and immediacy bias and things like that. And so we look at not very similar to, you know, people that are gambling, where, Somebody might start in at a certain point, you know, they, they might start off either good or they might start off bad. That really doesn't have a whole lot to do with it. But invariably, we're going to have some times when we're down, and the question is what happens and what controls our behavior from that standpoint. Um, do people want to double down in a sense, or are they going to put more back in? Are they going to want to wait it out? You know, when things get good, it's hard to tell when the, you know, party is going to be over. So when do you know to get out? And so we see things like that that creep up and really change the decision-making processes that a lot of people have with respect to being able to uh, make good investment decisions. In fact, one of the reasons that we advocate that people try to have an advisor who's going to help them to do that is because to some extent an advisor can take a little bit more of a clinical approach. You know, if they're looking at stocks, for example, then they may have target prices that they're going to buy and that they're going to sell at, and as long as they subscribe to that, then that's going to help them take some of the emotionality out of the investment world. And little things like that can help to improve what people are doing. Um, one of the areas that we're starting to research now that, that I find really fascinating is especially in families or couples when you're dealing with finance. And I see this a lot, especially working with uh, couples that are going into retirement or couples that are at some life transition, whether it's just getting married or having kids or something like that. But, you know, in the world of psychology, there's a lot of different systems that you can kind of buy into. But one of the ones that I think is very applicable to what happens in the world of finance is something called family systems. And the idea there is that you know, in any family unit, the problem or the issue is with the family itself or with the unit itself, not with the person who's presenting the problem. So the person who's presenting the problem is what we would call the identified patient. And everybody else is going to have a role that has to deal with how they relate to that person. And what I found is that money can actually facilitate that same position inside a relationship. So if there's other issues with respect to, let's say, how a husband and wife are relating to each other just in general, once you interject money, that now gives them something to focus on, something to fight about. And you can see a lot of these same processes that might play out, you know, if you had a, a child who was, you know, getting in trouble at school or something like that, a lot of the same things can actually play out with respect to finances. So when we start talking about potential solutions, um, I think the first thing is to recognize that money is, at the end of the day, a tool. And if there's other things that's going on, then those are the things that may need to be addressed. But this is another area where I found that having a financial advisor can almost operate like a mediator in a sense, <laughs> because you may have one person who is saying, well, you know, I'm really from a family that's used to saving and I like to save everything I have. And they married somebody who, you know, money was never an issue, so they just spend it because they assume it's always going to be there it's hard for them to find middle ground if they're just talking at each other. But if you have a planner who can help them base their decisions 
in mutual goals, then they, in a sense, can kind of bridge that gap and speak both individuals' languages and help them to find solutions that's going to be meaningful and significant for both of them, if that kind of makes sense. Sure, that makes sense, yes. Let's go to another topic, which is uh, income for retirement. Say people have gotten to retirement, they've saved a decent amount, but today, if they put their money in the bank and CDs and money market funds, they're pretty much going to get zero. Uh, what do you recommend for people to earn income off of capital if they've built up the capital they need for retirement? Yeah. I think there's a couple strategies that people can utilize here. And, and the first thing is they have to recognize that income and rate of return are two different aspects. So when you look at income in retirement, it's really a derivative of two different variables, your account value and your withdrawal rate. And your withdrawal rate is primarily going to be based off the distribution strategy that you elected, whether it's a liquidation strategy where you're selling off shares to try to free up cash or something that's based more on generating interest or dividends. So one of the biggest mistakes we see people make is that they may have a heavily appreciation-oriented strategy that they just kind of carried into retirement with them that they had while they were working. But that almost by default forces people to use a liquidation strategy where they're trying to manage selling off shares at a certain share price. The problem is if you do that, you got to look at safe withdrawal rates as far as how much you can pull out on an annual basis. And because we're in a low interest rate environment, current studies like the ones done by Morningstar in 2013 would suggest that for a lot of people, that might mean you can only pull three to three and a half percent per year. So if people can try to use a combination of interest or income generating strategies, that can give them a dividend or interest that's a little bit higher than that, maybe 4%, 5%, 6%, then that might actually increase their income by 33 to 66%, irregardless of what's happening in the market movements. And that's something that we see people kind of missing, but once they can apply that to their strategy, it can have a significant impact. What are some vehicles you recommend that yield 4 to 6% or so that are relatively safe? Yeah, so it, it varies. We find that it's a combination of a lot of things. So you might be looking at uh, you know, investment grade corporate bonds. If somebody has a little bit higher risk tolerance, they may go down to double B corporate bonds. You might be talking about preferred stock or fixed to float preferred stock. You might be looking at, you know, REITs, whether they're public or private or business development companies, but basically anything that has the capacity to generate interest or dividends, they're not all going to yield that. But if you can aggregate them together, some of the lower yielding stuff with some of the higher yielding stuff so that you can manage risk as well, then we find that you might be able to aggregate and push up that effective income yield to a little bit of a higher number. Let's go to the macro for the moment. Uh, what is your current view in the market and what the Federal Reserve is going to be doing? They raised rates a quarter point. Apparently, you didn't think that was a particularly good idea last year. Do you think they're going to raise more? And if so, how would that impact the market? <laughs> so it's, it's really hard to tell. Um, and I know that we, myself included, kind of beat up on the Fed a little bit. But the truth is, it's very, they're in a very difficult position. You know, we were looking at some stuff towards the end of the last year where any, you know, if they were going to raise interest rates, they might be in a situation where they were going to flatten the yield curve, which could have some negative impacts for the uh, economy as a whole. But I think the biggest issue with what's going on is more of the uncertainty. Um, it's the question every couple of months whether or not it's going to happen that is playing havoc on the market because uncertainty in the market just creates more volatility. So I think we're in a situation where if I think longer term, interest rates are going to have to rise at some point. We just don't know 
when that's going to happen. But as long as we're kind of doing this, you know, are they going to do it? Are they not going to do it? And if they do it, are they going to have to retract it? I think that's the part that's really starting to hurt markets here domestically and globally also. So if you were the Fed chair, would you raise rates under the current circumstances? You know, I don't know if I would. Um, I think that any raise that would happen, even if I were to raise rates, would be so small that it would be a symbolic raise rather than anything that was going to be, you know, super uh, meaningful. So for the time being, with respect to the things that I'm seeing, I think I'd probably hold off a little bit. But uh, I'm just glad that I don't have that responsibility. Because <laughs> either way you go, there might be issues. So it could happen, it could not happen. So in a kind of uncertain environment on the Fed, how does that affect your outlook for the stock market? Well, I think that it is one contributing factor amongst many that is pointing to increased volatility in the market as a whole. Um, if we look at just uh, historical trends that tend to govern secular cycles, I think that what we should anticipate in, in a kind of, you know, I'm not trying to just give bad news, but I think that we should, at the very least, just be cautious. Um, it seems to me that there's a lot of metrics that govern the market that are indicating that things may not be, you know, in the past, may not be completely done. And so this upward trajectory that we've kind of had for the last five years or so, I don't know how much of it we're really going to retain. I think that there could be some significant corrections in the horizon here and that we need to be prepared for that. So for people that are in retirement or close to retirement, they should start thinking about taking steps down the risk ladder. For people that maybe have a little bit of a longer horizon, then it's a question of whether or not they want to ride the roller coaster and kind of look at it. I mean, we do have some clients that, knowing our viewpoint on the market, have said, well, you know what, I got 20, 30 years, I'm okay with it, I just want to systematically keep investing. That's a good decision. But I really caution anybody in retirement or close to retirement um, to really just make sure that they've taken a look at what they're holding so that they don't have more risk than they really need to accomplish their financial objective. And do you typically recommend individual uh, stocks or mutual funds or managed accounts or ETFs? What uh, tools do you use uh, for stock exposure? Yeah, it really varies. Um, you know, when we're looking at, at appreciation-oriented strategies, um, we tend to look a lot at mutual funds and ETFs, and we do have some great relationships with some firms that do some sub-advisory work that have some wonderful, in my opinion, tactically managed equity positions. And I really like that. Um, if I look at what I'm trying to do with some of the income-generating strategies, these days we tend to not really do many things with ETFs or mutual funds. We're doing a lot more individual, you know, laddered portfolios if we're looking at bonds or just a good combination of other dividend or interest-generating strategies. But we found that if we're, you know, just based off of where we are from an economic standpoint, um, we're trying to stay away from things like really volatile closed-end funds. We're staying away from a lot of bond mutual funds in general, um, just thinking that it's not the best position to be in if interest rates were to start rising. What is the minimum that you uh, require for people to work with you as far as investable assets? Yeah, we don't necessarily have a minimum. You know, the way that we look at it is if it's a situation where we can be of service, where there's a mutual benefit, um, the client's a good fit for what we do, and we think that we can help improve something financially, then we're happy to talk to anybody to see if they're a good fit for us. So in about a minute or we so have left, why don't you just kind of sum up your idea of holistic financial planning and why what you offer at Financial is different from what people are going to get from other, other firms? Sure. So 
I think that holistic financial planning is all about taking this energy that we spend, thinking about all these financial aspects in our lives, and put it on paper so that we can start making some concrete uh, decisions as far as what we want to do with our financial lives. So it's everything from budgeting to social security maximization to looking at insurance, looking at wealth transfer, estate planning, long-term care needs and investment needs and tax needs, and being able to integrate it all into one cohesive plan that doesn't take a you know PhD in economics to be able to decipher once you leave our office. And that's really what we're about is just trying to make practical approaches, practical steps, practical plans that somebody can really adhere to and follow uh, to be able to get where they're trying to go financially. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Sam McElroy. He's the founder and managing member at At Financial. Uh, you can find out more about him at his website, which is www.atfinancial.com. Thanks so much for being on the show, Sam. All right. Thanks a lot, Jordan. Thank you. And we'll be back after this break with our next guest. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This half hour, my guest is Jefferson Lilly. Uh, he is an expert in mobile home park investing. Uh, welcome to the show, Jefferson. Hey, Jordan. It's great to be with you. Let's start with a little bit of background about you and what your background was and how you got into the, the whole field of mobile home park investing. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I've been a lifetime investor. I, I actually bought my first stock, I think, when I was 17, and my dad had to co-sign the trade ticket. Uh, I won't tell you how old I am, but that's long before the, uh, the days of the Internet and Internet trading. Um, but, you know, I've just always... I basically have gravitated towards value investing. Um, I'm also a big fan of Warren Buffett. And so I was looking for some real estate that would 
basically be value real estate. I live out in San Francisco. There certainly wasn't very much value uh, around me there. Uh, but just in looking for, for real estate that had really strong cash flows and stable tenants and relatively little maintenance, um, that all led me to, uh, to mobile home parks. So talk, talk about the economics of mobile home parks from an investor's point of view. Uh, how much does yeah. it take to get into it? What kind of returns can people expect? Yeah, so one of the unique things about this niche in real estate is that it's got a very easy on-ramp. Uh, you can get started, you know, with as little as a couple thousand bucks uh, just buying the individual mobile homes and uh, maybe doing a little fix-up and then renting those out or renting to own them. Uh, we own the actual dirt, you know, the actual mobile home park, the land, um, and we advise that people become landowners as soon as they can. Um, but folks can get started, again, for, for very little. I've got a, a friend of mine who did that. Uh, he ended up owning about 50 mobile homes uh, that he was renting out before he bought his first park. Um, I just started with a park. Uh, it was a little less than a half-million-dollar acquisition, and I put down about 80000 uh, on that deal. The rest was bank financing. Um, so, again, folks can get started very little. With very little, if folks have got multiple millions to deploy, there certainly are larger parks, and you can prudently deploy, you know, seven figures as well. Um, and then returns, at least the way we do it, we, we like to buy in the Midwest. We're not big fans of uh, real estate on either coast just for reasons of valuation. Um, so, again, we're buying in places like Dayton, Ohio, uh, and southern Illinois, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, but we're typically getting, well, our fund will, will get somewhere around 30% cash on cash, uh, and we then split that with our investors. Um, so if someone were to do this on their own, you know, you could get upwards of 30% cash on cash, put down hundred grand, you are going to get back 30000 a year, mostly tax-free, uh, at least to start because of depreciation and amortization of goodwill. Um, certainly, you can get 20% cash on cash uh, all day long. Again, if you if you really do it right, you're going to get closer to 30. Tell us about your fund a little bit. How much does it take to get into it? What is the commitment, uh, and what kind of you know returns can people get through your fund? Yeah, so uh, we got started with our first fund last year, 2015. Although we did do some some individual deals, just deal by deal in 2014. Uh, but uh, uh, for last year's fund, we do these roughly once a year. Uh, the minimum was 50000 uh to invest, and we pay an 8% preferred rate of return, uh, and then we split all additional profits 50-50. Uh, my partner Brad uh, and I do not take any management fees. Uh, we do take a 2% acquisition fee up front, but uh, we really have to buy good deals because, again, we, we, unlike most other real estate partnerships that I'm aware of anyway, we don't take fees. Uh, we, we only put food on the table, as it were, once our investors uh, get, get paid their 8% return plus uh, half of additional profits. So that, that's getting them towards a mid-teens return. Uh, once we get that fund fully invested, I, I think they'll probably be generating 14, 15, maybe 16% cash on cash. Um, plus, again, there'll be appreciation on top of that, which we guesstimate would be another 10%. So that'll get them into a mid-20-something percent rate of return. Um, 
again, compounded over about a 10-year hold period. Our, our fund has a 10-year life, um, although there are some provisions for liquidity if, if folks would want to get out and get liquid sooner. Uh, but, but, but people should assume they're going to be in there for 10 years, you're saying? They should probably assume they're going to be in there for 10 years. Yeah, we'd certainly help facilitate selling their interests to someone else if they wanted. Um, but, yeah, real estate in general is not for folks that are looking to, you know, move in and out of something in an afternoon. I know you can you can day trade stocks that way. But, uh, real estate, we think, at least the way our world views that it's really best done with a long-term uh, buy and hold strategy, and, and you just cash flow out of it, and uh, you know you, you sell it maybe at the end of the partnership, or potentially restructure the partnership, get some folks out that want to get out, and you know some other folks that want to get in, maybe they come in. But uh, anyway, yeah, we, we we plan on about a ten year hold period. So the two websites uh, that to people to find out more about this are ParkStreetPartners.net and MobileHomeParkInvestors.net. What can people find at those websites? Yep. Yeah, so you'll find information both if you're looking to get into the business yourself. There's some educational materials there. There, uh, uh, and actually, the second website, the Mobile Home Park Investors.net website, links through to our podcast, uh, and that's all education. Uh, it, uh, and it can be found on iTunes and on Stitcher. But again, just that website will link you through to it, uh, as well as to our group on LinkedIn. Uh, which is the largest mobile home park uh, in, investors group on uh, LinkedIn. So there's plenty of resources for folks that are looking to actually get into the business. Uh, then if you're looking to invest with us, there's uh, plenty of information about that and uh, some of our uh, previous deals uh, just on that uh, parkstreetpartners.net uh, website. So basically folks that either want to be actively in the business or passively uh, in this business, they'll 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 find resources on uh, both those pages. So most people would think mobile home parks are kind of a lower demographic, and these are people who are kind of barely scraping by, and they're not going to be paying their rents. I mean, this is not an area most people would want to go into. What is the reality of mobile <laughs> home park investing? Yeah, the reality is that the niche gets very bad. PR. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you understand why. It just seems that whenever there is, say, a tornado that hits a mobile home park or there's a drug bust or what have you, you know, the media is all over it and that's all you see on the news. Uh, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but uh, I am saying it really only might affect the bottom one or two percent uh, of mobile home parks. Um, you know, most mobile home parks are just fine, full of, you know, very good, hardworking folks. Uh, indeed, our, our average uh, clientele probably has an average household income uh, of somewhere between thirty and thirty-five thousand a year. Um, but these are not bad folks. They're they're just they're hardworking. They're the folks that are serving you food at Denny's or Pizza Hut, uh, or driving you know the FedEx delivery truck that brings you your your deliveries. Um, and they unfortunately don't have a shot at owning a site-built house, not on a thirty or thirty-five thousand a year household income. But uh, we can help them get into and own uh, a three-bedroom, uh, you know, twelve hundred some odd square foot house, three-bedroom, two bath, in most of our markets for somewhere around six hundred and fifty bucks uh, a month, and uh, with as little as say two thousand dollars down. And they're probably going to own that house in roughly five years. Uh, we don't keep people indebted for 30 years <laughs> like the banks on site-built houses. So uh, our tenants, you know, again, they're hardworking folks. They know they can't, unfortunately, afford a site-built house. 
but uh, what we offer them is is truly affordable housing. Um, they're getting they're, they're going to become a homeowner for less than uh, what it would cost them to rent, probably just a two bedroom apartment uh, in most of our markets. Again, we can help them become a homeowner uh, of a three bedroom house for uh, for less than the cost of that two bedroom apartment. So, uh, so you are selling yeah, we, the mobile home to them and giving them a mortgage, or are they renting and having the rent apply towards the purchase? It's really the latter. It's what we call rent credit, uh, which is similar to uh, renting to own, but renting to own typically would tie them to a single house. Uh, we do, we, again, we, we call it rent credit, so it's really good for any home uh, that we have in the community. So it works more like a frequent flyer mileage program. Uh, tenants, you know, we're, we're not certain exactly what house a tenant might cash in their credits for. Similarly, an airline isn't certain what flight you might cash in your miles for. But uh, tenants are accruing the value nonetheless. And, uh, again, they, they can switch to a, a larger or a smaller house if, if uh, their lifestyle needs change. Um, anyways, that's the way our program works. And, again, folks typically become homeowners really in anywhere between about three and seven years. So you're making money both selling the home because you're buying it at a cheaper price and selling it to them at a markup, yep. and you're getting income from the rents. Is that correct? Yeah. We really want to be in the land business, so we make most of our money off the land. Uh, we view the house business as really being a necessary evil. Uh, we do make some money uh, off being in the house business, but uh, really we'll do just fine to sell the houses really at, at cost or maybe only a 10% markup. Um, and what we really want is, again, to, to help a deserving family get a house that they're going to own, and then they virtually always leave it in the community uh, and pay us the lot rent. Uh, of course, once it's theirs, it's their property, they're, they're free to move it off onto their own land uh, or potentially into another park. But most folks uh, are happy uh, in, in the community and, frankly, might not be able to afford land uh, to move the house to. Um, so most, most folks do leave it uh, in our community and, and pay us the lot rent, which probably averages about 300 bucks, 325 uh, across our portfolio. So quite, quite affordable, a big step down from what a lot of these families were paying, which would have been eight to 900 bucks rent uh, for a two-bedroom apartment. Again, they, they are getting into a house for less money right off the bat, and then when they own it in, say, five years, again, they're, they're down to paying just around 300 a month. So uh, even after they bought the house, right? even yeah. after they bought the house, they're still being charged land rent. They never get to own the land. That's what you own. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, we're a mobile home park. Yeah. Some other folks go at this business with the idea of selling off the land with the house. Uh, that's just not the way we do it. Uh, we are in the mobile home park business, buy and hold. So what we really want is to own the land for the long run. Um, and then we've got, you know, a bunch of responsible families that own their house. They're showing pride of ownership. They take care of all the maintenance on the house and taxes and insurance. Uh, so this is a much better business than, for instance, being in traditional multifamily, uh, you know, being uh, in the apartment business or, or having a bunch of single-family houses. Because at least in the long run, we don't own uh, the improvements. We don't own those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs. We've sold those to the families that, you know, not surprisingly, when they own something, they take better care of it. So, you know, it, it really is a win-win for everyone that 
they get to have a, a dramatically reduced uh, cost of housing in exchange for, you know, taking responsibility for their house. And then we just get the uh, ongoing stable stream of income into the land uh, from the lot rent. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Jefferson Lilly. Uh, he, he has founded Park Street Partners, which specializes in mobile home investments. Uh, two websites you can find out more about him are parkstreetpartners.net and mobilehomeparkinvestors.net. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Jefferson Lilly. Uh, he specializes in investing in mobile home parks, mostly in the Midwest. You can find out more about him and his uh, offerings at the website Park Street Investors. Parkstreetpartners.net, and the other one is mobilehomeparkinvestors.net. Welcome back to the show, Jefferson. Great to be back, Jordan. So let's talk a little bit about the macro of the mobile home park business and what would drive appreciation in that over time. Yeah. So this is a particularly unique real estate niche. It's the only niche that has shrinking supply. Uh, again, if you're investing in apartment buildings or self-storage facilities, office, retail, anything else, they're always building more of that every year. Only mobile home parks have a shrinking supply. Uh, over the last couple decades, pretty much every city and county has made it uh, illegal or let's just say against zoning uh, to develop any more mobile home parks. So right there, the supply of these things are fixed. They basically aren't building mobile home parks anymore. And then the best guesstimate that we have in the industry is that the supply is shrinking about 1% a year. 
about 1% of all mobile home parks get plowed under every year and become, you know, a sexy shopping mall or apartment building or what have you. So that, that right there at the high level, that's a, a tremendous uh, macroeconomic driver of this business that, you're, again, your competition is slowly but surely going away. And folks with mobile homes in those communities that close, they've got to go somewhere. So they're infilling into the remaining mobile home parks. So we've had that happen with a couple of our uh, roughly dozen properties over the last couple of years where competing parks have closed. People, again, have moved in their own house. Um, so shrinking supply it makes this a very unique niche. Um, it's also unique because, as we touched on earlier, we tend to buy parks where tenants already own their own mobile homes. Uh, or if they're vacancies, you know, we'll, we'll bring in uh, some homes that we might buy, potentially new or out of a foreclosure. We'll infill and, again, then sell those homes on a basically a rent-to-own agreement. But what happens there is that, again, the tenants own the homes, so they take care of the maintenance. Uh, so our, our maintenance costs are, are really less than half of what most real estate investors' maintenance costs are. Uh, it's much more expensive, again, to own a single-family house, quadplex, or an apartment where you're actually responsible for repairing those leaky toilets and leaky roofs. We don't own those. We don't have, have the maintenance uh, on that. So our goal really is to own a parking lot, just the land, we have a bunch of responsible tenants, more responsible than apartment dwellers. These folks have stepped up out of apartments and, again, want to become homeowners. So uh, it, it's a self, self-filtering self group of higher-quality tenants than you typically find in an apartment rental uh, business. So, uh, again, our goal is just to own the land uh, that's becoming increasingly valuable because of shrinking supply. Um, and then, again, the tenants are maintaining their own four walls because they own them. So our maintenance and headaches <laughs> uh, are, are relatively low. So very, very good if, if these are If these are so good as far as allowing affordable housing for people, uh, why are cities banning them or stopping them? or what, Why is the supply being restricted so much if these do such a good thing in society? Yeah, well... And now we're going to have to talk a little bit about politics. <laughs> so without going too far into that, you know, pretty much every city and county, uh, you know, the, the folks that sit on the council are, you know, middle class and upper, and by and large, they are elected by folks that are middle class and, and upper classes. Uh, and, and frankly, folks' propensity to vote, uh, you know, scales positively with your income. Like if you make 100000 bucks a year, you're about 100% likely to vote. If you make 30000 a year, you're about 30% likely to vote. So folks in mobile home parks just tend not to have much of a voice. Um, they are, you know, only about 5% uh, of this nation's population uh, lives in a mobile home park. Um, so even if they all voted, they might not be able to outvote other people that just view them, you know, incorrectly as being, uh, you know, drug havens or places of violence or other ill repute. Um, so I don't think it's deserved, but that sort of not in my backyard uh, dynamic uh, has really spread nationwide over the last several decades. And again, virtually every uh, city and county has passed regulations uh, making it uh, really just not 
not legal or not economic to develop any more uh, mobile home parks, which is too bad. Because uh, again, yeah. this is a path for for folks that I- that are in need to become homeowners. But uh, government, you know, when government wants to provide affordable housing, what does government do? Government builds housing and then they rent it to tenants at subsidized rates, and government gets bigger, and tenants never have a shot at home ownership. So surely the smartest thing would be to encourage uh, more mobile home parks to be developed and allow more deserving folks at the thirty, thirty-five thousand a year income level to become homeowners. But government doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, you're talking about land trusts. What what is a land trust, and why would you want to buy a mobile home park as part of a land trust? Okay, so yeah, there are about 130 some odd different forms of trust uh, recognized in America. A land trust is particularly unique. Uh, because first, it has to be used just for real estate. So this, this isn't a personal property trust or a charitable remainder trust or anything else. You can only put real estate into a land trust, but it enables you to pick a trustee, and then only that trustee is recorded uh, on, uh, you know, on title. Uh, you're the beneficial interest holder of the trust, but your name doesn't go on title. Um, so you can either get a financial friend uh, to be your trustee. Probably that would be somebody, you know, without your same last name. You know, if you want to be anonymous, you're not going to pick your brother who's got your same last name. Uh, but so, so it provides anonymity. Um, it also uh, circumvents probate. So heaven forbid, if you pass away, your property, again, not just for mobile homes, but mobile home parks, all kinds of real estate in a land trust would circumvent probate. So you can simply write into the trust that in the event of your unlikely demise, you know, your, your property is to be uh, either sold or, again, just the income from it now goes to your wife, your church, your children, wh- whatever you want to, to benefit. Um, so circumventing probate uh, is another good reason uh, to hold uh, things uh, in, in a land trust. In about two minutes we have left, why don't you kind of summarize who are the appropriate investors for investing in the funds that you have that invest in mobile home parks? Okay, so we uh, are a properly registered 506 uh, Reg D fund uh, with the SEC. Uh, So that means we can talk widely about it, as I'm doing on your show, but in exchange, we can only take accredited investors. So that would be folks with a million dollar and up net worth, uh, exclusive of their primary residence, uh, or folks that make 200,000 a year or 300000 a year if married. So if they are accredited, then again, they can invest in our fund. Uh, we, do, we have also worked with a couple of folks that are not accredited that have bird-dogged deals. They have found deals, mobile home parks, on their own, brought them to us, and then we formed a partnership. So that's perfectly fine if someone's not accredited and they want to go find a park to buy and bring it to us, then they would probably invest uh, in the deal alongside our fund. They wouldn't be in our fund. They would be a partner of our fund. But we've then helped folks to learn this business. We tutor them. We educate them on how to run the park for, say, six months, maybe a year. Um, and then they can go off and buy a park on their own if they want. Uh, or maybe uh, at that point uh, they might choose to, to find another deal and partner with us. Um, so as I say, we're, we're open for business uh, here at Park Street Partners. <laughs> And the, and the idea is a source of stable income, some potential appreciation, but it's really designed for current income, right? 
we, we are certainly able to pay out into the teens for current income. Uh, we think there will be very good long-term appreciation because rents are likely to rise faster than inflation, again, for the reasons I touched on earlier. So we think there will be a significant return just longer term, but we think there will also be appreciation of probably 10 percent. So we anticipate our investors are going to be earning somewhere into the 20 some odd percent annual uh, rate of return and compound that over a decade. And, and, you know, our investors will do quite well, uh, as my partner and I will (laughs) as well. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Jefferson Lilly. Uh, He is the uh, Managing Director at Park Street Partners. You can find out more about him at his website, parkstreetpartners.net. And also they have another website, mobilehomeparkinvestors.net. Thanks so much for being on the show. I think people learned a lot today, Jefferson. Jordan, thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks again. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.